and welcome to Traditional Bowhunter Magazine's Campfire Chat Podcast. If you've been reading the magazine for a while, you recognize the name A. Preston Taylor. He's a wildlife biologist, currently living and working in North Coastal California, and he's written several great articles for TBM. TJ chatted with Preston about tracking wildlife and using every part of the animals that we hunt. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the campfire. Welcome again to another edition of Traditional Bullhunters Campfire Chat Podcast. And today uh, we have the pleasure of having Preston Taylor, who's uh, written several excellent articles for TBM uh, over the years. And uh, he's actually a master tracker and fairly a fairly decent bow hunter, as much as we can tell. And anyways, Preston, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> welcome to the, the podcast. It's great to be here. I know we have a lot to go over. Um, I've actually been pretty thrilled about your ability to track animals and i think that's kind of special and i know you've written several excellent articles for tbm over the years but um first of all i'd like to know how did you get into bow hunting what was your your impetus there that got you into that uh you know i was born in boston and i would consider uh, most of my youth to be a city rat but uh, my father, he grew up in, in the country in the hills in North Carolina, and, and he took effort to introduce me to the natural world, <clears throat> even if it was just waking me up at night to watch a lunar eclipse. Um, but some of my you know, earliest and, and fondest memories are um, in the summers when we would go clamming or, or chicken necking for blue crabs. Um, we'd go out into the country and build live traps to catch cottontails and, and things like that. Um, so even though I, I consider myself, you know, growing up in the city, uh, I think there was this this love for the outdoors that he instilled in me um, when I was young. And that hibernated until uh, when I was 16. Um, my high school years were a bit tumultuous. And uh, my family sent me to this wilderness experience in Utah where we lived uh, for two months in the desert. Um, pretty, pretty, you know, primitive lifestyle. There was, there were no lighters or matches. We made fire by friction. We lived in our tarp was also our backpack. We would roll all, all our stuff up in there and then strap on shoulder straps and hike every day. And, and that was really my, my first experience, you know, into the, the big mountains and, and, you know, the, an exposure to wild places. <clears throat> and, and from there, I, I kind of started to, to long for it. So after high school, I moved to Vermont. Uh, I worked at the Vermont Wilderness School and, and really dove into all of the outdoor skills, um, survival and navigation. And, and one of those things that um, I, I really loved was archery. I started making bows. <clears throat> so after four years um, sort of practicing this stuff, I, I decided, you know, I, I needed to start living it. And, and um, that's kind of how I started hunting. You know, the first two years that I hunted, I moved out west to go to school right after that. Um, I moved to California, started community college. And the first two years that I hunted, I think, let me see, my first year hunting was 2008. And that year I went out with my buddy JR rifle hunting and, and he killed a buck on opening day. And then I hunted the rest of that season and, and didn't shoot a buck with my rifle. And the next year uh, I killed a buck, my first buck on opening day with a rifle. And I just thought, you know what? Um, I'm going to, hunt with a bow after this <laughs> uh, it, seemed, it, it seemed kind of easy and and that's not really true but um you know the, the following year 2010 i bought an archery only tag it was either sex it was a three-month season 
Um, and even though, you know, I was in Southern California, um, in the mountains east of San Diego, you know, most people think of cities, um, down there, which is generally true. Right. I had, um, hundreds of thousands of acres to chase these desert mule deer. And, um, and I, and I was doing it all with a self bow. Um, and, and that's, you know, how I started to learn. I, I probably missed eight, eight does that year shooting <laughs> over their backs, you know, um, everybody yeah. does it. Yeah, that's where it started. Interesting. Um, you, you you mentioned down there in Southern California, so you were hunting those mule deer out there. Yeah, the Southern Desert mule deer. Um, really uh, rocky chaparral country. Um, you know, very few trees. And and since you brought up tracking, um, incredible substrate to to actually try to find the deer by following their tracks. I'll bet. Um, so that's kind of you know how I got into that as well. Well, it's interesting. You, you've you've mentioned a lot about tracking, and I know that uh, you've done some fabulous work with that. You said you got it, but how did you actually start tracking? And I know this is your forte mostly, um, and you're able to stalk all kinds of animals. I know there's a there's a big steep learning curve, but I'm curious as to how did you get started in that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I started with a, with a good friend of mine, Max Allen in Vermont and and it started at the beginning we we would go to the the river bank and look in the mud and find prints of animals and and try to identify them you know that's where it started with with it's like learning to read you have to be able to recognize the letters and and then put the letters into words and then you know read read the the novel and so it started with learning to identify animal sign what did the tracks look like from all the species what did their scat look like what did all their sign look like and and then in New England, because it snowed uh, in the winter, we would we would spend a lot of time actually following animal tracks. Um, one neat thing that we did, we picked this up from Mark Elbrock. He told us to choose one animal, not just a species, but one animal and try to follow that animal all winter. So one year we did red foxes that lived in the field by our house. Um, one year I did gray foxes, one year fishers. And I, and I tried to follow that specific animal all year and, and just learn how it used its territory. In 2006, uh, I attended my first cyber tracker um, evaluation. And this was uh, a method developed by Louis Liebenberg in South Africa. He spent a lot of time with the Bushmen, you know, and we've all heard about the Bushmen. Yes, I've uh, You had that. Oh, that then you just you know it's funny <laughs> it's, it's you know it's funny because everybody talks about how awesome they are and believe me there are some very very excellent trackers but i've also spent time in namibia and elsewhere um with with the, with the bushman that they really couldn't follow a double yellow line down the street and uh, it's yeah. but that's you know there are very very good ones and i just happened to run into a couple that really couldn't find anything and um uh, there's, there's lots of stories there. I won't bring it up, but it, they are absolutely fabulous. They can pick one hoof out of a herd and follow it for miles and find that animal. And it's really amazing. That's cool. And and that's the reality is that, and I'll get back to the cyber tracking thing, but the reality is that tracking is just a skill like any other. And no one's born with it. You have to practice to get good at it. And it's only through practice that you can get good. You know, right. we, there's a lot of myths around tracking and, and um, it's just a skill like any other. Um, so, so Louis Liebenberg developed this system 
to quantify and qualify the Bushmen to help employ them in wildlife research and ecotourism, anti-poaching efforts there. Right. And, and he was, he was spending time with folks, you know, like the guys that were filmed on with BBC doing that persistence hunt, you know, he helped organize that. So, so he developed this model that Mark Elbrock then was certified in and he brought to America. And in 2006, I attended my first evaluation there's two sides. There's an identification side and then a trailing side. And in 2007, when I was in California, I attended a trailing evaluation. And the premise for one of those is that we go out on the landscape, find a set of fresh tracks, and they watch you try to follow it until you catch up to the animal and sneak in on it. And I got to witness uh, Brian McConnell be awarded uh, a senior tracker certificate um, for successfully following this black bear across the landscape to its bed. And, you know, we're doing this without snow. Hmm. And, and that really opened my eyes. To, yeah, that, that showed me what was actually possible, you know. Um, hmm. And I would like to clarify, you introduced me as a master tracker through the cyber tracker. I made a mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, a, I'm a senior tracker. The master tracker is an honorary certificate. Um, and so after seeing you know, what Brian could do, I really, really wanted to go for it. And, and that's what it pretty much while I was going to college from 2006 on, I focused all of my time when I wasn't in school or working on tracking animal behavior and hunting. And over the course of nine years, I eventually got to the point where I was skilled enough and comfortable enough um, being tested to where they awarded me a senior certificate as well. That's uh, really quite an honor. It's a that's a rare thing. I've never even heard about this before. But uh, I also want to ask you a question about that. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting. You said it took you almost uh, almost ten years to be comfortable yeah. enough to take that that test, that series of tests, and you and you passed, obviously. Yeah, it. You know, it's funny when you get up to the the way that they're they're graded is um, for a senior, you you get a hundred percent. And when you get up into those upper levels, the, the high 90s, and you're really going for that, you know, perfect score, uh, a lot of it is mental. I mean, and we all experience this as bow hunters. Um, you know, the the moment comes and you just fall apart mentally, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I struggle with that as a bow hunter, and I struggled with it on the evaluations as well. Um, being confident in your skills, even when there's five people, you know, one of them, a master tracker, two senior trackers behind you watching every step you take, you know? Um, and, and so that was, that was a big part of it is just being comfortable with, you know, mentally. Interesting. Um, you know, in your article, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but in your article you wrote for us in the August, September, 2014 issue, you mentioned alarm systems that we should be aware as a hunter um, that animals have alarm systems that they use. Can you elaborate on that for me? Can you remind me which article that was? <laughs> um, I forgot the name of it. <laughs> I think it was uh, a scouting and you did some scouting and trailing and it was in the August, September, uh, 2014 issue, but you mentioned the alarm oh, 2014. system. Yes, it was, it was oh, okay. quite a while, a while, while ago. Oh, it's something yeah. I remember oh, yeah, because I, re- <laughs> I always, yeah. I always, re- I always go back to that, <clears throat> that article. And, uh, I thought it was very fascinating at that time. And I still find a lot of information in your past articles, that one especially about tracking, because, you know, there's times that I'd like to be a better tracker. I used to be fairly decent when I spent all those summers in Africa, but that's been, you know, a long, long time ago. 
But um, I'm okay, just curious, yeah. um, you, you mentioned a lot of the animals, like such as a circle around their bedding. Um, but I, I, you know, oh, yeah. You yeah. explain that to me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They, they, you know, as a scientist in my formal training, you know, in academia is, is to be a biologist, they don't want you to anthropomorphize or it's tough to prove that animals can think ahead. But, right. you know, as a, as a hunter, um, I've really seen the, this, this, the traps that animals set up for us. Um, for example, one time my, my wife and I were tracking this, this big buck that was down in Southern California. And as he approached where he was bedding, it was a little saddle with a big boulder. And he was coming up from the east side, up this draw. The wind was coming hard from the west. And, and the way that he approached it is he, he swung to the south of the boulder and then w- walked on the west side, upwind of his bed, and then looped back around underneath the boulder where his bed was. Now, we were right behind this buck. And, and as we got up to the, the boulder, it was, it was right when he was um, actually like kneeling down to bed and my wife caught the, the movement of his antler. And so we spotted him, but if he had already been bedded and we had stayed on his tracks, we would have circled right upwind of him, you know? So they, they're aware of, of these things and, and lay their traps like that. They also, um, before they bed, a lot of times they'll walk through really thick brush so it's hard to move without making a lot of noise um, or they lay their tracks down where they can see their trail. Um, and and mo- most folks listening to this are, are well aware of, you know, how they position their beds with the wind and, and different things like that. Um, so, so they're not, you know, they're pretty savvy out there. Hmm. That's interesting. I remember uh, reading about that too. And there's all kinds of traps that they do set. Um, you, you also uh, mentioned once, in one of your writings too, about learning, learning how an animal lives. And by, I believe that uh, you said that anybody can do that maybe in their backyard or if they have a little small patch where you can actually study to learn how to track better is to actually study how an animal lives. You want to explain that a little bit better? Yeah, they sure can. So this, this doesn't take, you know, big wilderness areas or, you know, exotic animals, um, to, you, you can learn about wildlife, like you're saying, right in your backyard. I, I have a little herd of deer uh, that live down in the swamp below us, and I take opportunities to, to watch them when I can, uh, to, to see what they're eating, to see how they interact, what, what noises they make. Uh, so, so you don't necessarily need a, a big patch of wilderness um, as long as there's wildlife that you're interested in, and, and especially for us bow hunters, it's often big game. Um, it's, it's important outside of the season to go to go spend some time in the woods with these animals or just with their sign. Um, so you can go out into the woodlot and follow deer runs, see where their what their beds look like and where their beds are. Any opportunity that you get to watch animals, um, take the time and to observe them. Um, something that I am always interested in is is what they're eating. So. Um, you know, I just will walk around and look for deer brows or, or with bears, I, you know, because they don't digest things very well. I poke through their, through their droppings to identify different berry seeds um, or plants that they're eating. And, and so the, I also recommend to folks going to state and national parks because the animals are often not as spooked. Mm-hmm. And, and you, can wa- you can watch them and, and you get to learn a lot of behavior that way. And, and what's really fun is if you get to watch animals after they leave the area, you can go over and then look at their sign and, and see, oh, look, you know, I, I watched them feeding on these bushes for 
half an hour. And when you get over there, you can see their tracks are circling around and zigzagging back and forth and going different directions. And so that kind of thing is going to help you as you, if you're walking through the forest hunting and all of a sudden you hit, you know, a feeding area, you know, it, it'll, it'll be easier to recognize. Um, so I definitely recommend folks spend as much time as they can outside of the hunting season, you know, with these animals, um, to learn about them. You do spend a lot of time outside then, don't you? In the off season. Yeah. I mean, as, oh, as much as I can. Um, yeah, as much as I can. So has this helped you in your bull hunting endeavors and any of your hunting? Obviously I'm sure it does, but, uh, how has it, how has it really helped you just by tracking? I know that it must be a kind of a dichotomy when you're, you're out hunting and yet you're still looking down at spore and not really hunting. I, I'm, I'm just curious how you, you go about doing that, such as yeah. a lot of times we scout when we hunt, but it sounds to me like you're more like you're scouting all the time and then hunting on the side. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. It certainly helps me just to understand animal behavior and to be able to predict what they're going to be doing reading the landscape and where to find animals. Uh, when the substrate is right for it, I will track animals when I'm hunting to actually find them, but the substrate has to be right. Um, it has to be the right animals, that kind of thing too. So, so it, it, the practice outside of hunting season helps me just to understand animal behavior, but when the conditions are right, you know, it, it certainly helps me find animals. And then after the shot, um, it, it definitely comes in big time, you know, when you don't have a blood trail, but you know, you hit it or the, the, the blood trail no, stops, you yeah. know what I mean? It, yeah. It, um, how do, you know, it's, that's a big question. How does it help me? You know, I, sometimes I don't think it does. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I'm just like everybody else. I'll spend a lot of days in the woods and not see animals. Oh yeah. <laughs> I've, I've spent, I've spent a week hunting elk and never seen one. <laughs> I've jumped them. And so, yeah, yeah, I know exactly how that works. And it's like, oh my God, they walked right through my tracks an hour ago. So, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I would, I would say um, it helps just, just when you encounter sign in the woods to be able to age it, like to know, okay, these elk are just here or mm -hmm. they haven't been here in a week, you know, that kind of thing. And, and when you get the right, the right tracks in the right substrate, with the right animal. I, I mean, I follow it, if, you know, if I can for sure. And, and that, that allows me to find a lot of animals, um, regardless of whether or not I can actually get a shot off. Well, it's interesting. Um, I think that that's, that's something that everybody listening can, uh, try and adapt to their time in the outdoors. Uh, let's change the subject a little bit. Now, I mean, obviously you're tracking super, but, uh, I'd like to know what is your equipment you're shooting right now? Ah, so right now, I'm shooting, um, it's a, a laminated hybrid longbow. Um, you know, it's made by a professional bowyer. It's a, a Falcon, um, 62 inch, uh, bow by Java man archery. Oh, excellent. Um, yeah, it's a 51 pounds at 29 inches. That's my draw length. I'm shooting, uh, carbon arrows, um, with Stoss broadheads. Um, I, you know, I started, uh, with self bows and, and I killed my first two big game animals with self bows, but then I had to confront the, the reality of target panic. And, you know, Clay Hayes has spoken pretty eloquently and quite a bit about this. Mm -hmm. I had, a, you know, I've had a pretty similar journey with target panic and, and, um, you know, he's an incredible bowyer and, and was able to overcome it, you know, with his quality craftsmanship. But I, I decided that, uh, 
to switch to a, a laminated longbow. So I purchased a, a used longbow that was smoother drawing, center shot, more forgiving. I put a clicker on there. Um, I, I switched to carbon arrows because um, I really needed to confront this, you know. Mm-hmm. And and um, over the past, I don't know, maybe six or seven years, I, I have more control over it. Um, I'm definitely shooting better. And, and my goal is to move back towards that more primitive side of things. I'm working on some self bows right now. It's always my, my goal to get back there um, and be shooting wood arrows because I, I just love it. But, but, you know, just for the, the ethics that I needed to, to shoot something that was a little bit easier, to be honest. You know? Right. Well, I know that I've, yeah. uh, I used to shoot a very heavy bow, 69 pounds for a long, long time. And, but you know, today the bows, as you're experiencing, the most boyers today are turning out equipment that is so far advanced than what we were shooting 12, 15, 20 years ago that the, I, I've dropped down to 56 pounds and I've shot completely through elk and all kinds of big game animals in Africa and totally hmm. happy with it. But that's, you know, that's, that's, I think that most of the boyers now are actually they're they've increased the efficiency of all their bows. So what you're buying today, there's mm-hmm. a lot of good boyers out there, but that's, yeah. uh, that, that's, but so you like shooting carbon though? I do. Um, mainly cause I, I, I lose a lot of arrows. I shoot at squirrels <laughs> and grouse and quail and stumps and, I lose a ton of arrows and, <laughs> and, 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 um, you know, I am making the switch back to wood eventually, but, but yeah, I'll shoot, I'll shoot carbon arrows. Uh, my wife has aluminum arrows. Um, but I, you know, I do, I'm, I'm working on bows and, and I've got a bunch of billets of fur to make arrows and I do still work, make that stuff. Um, I'm just, I'm chasing that, that, that perfect self bow, you know, I'm, I'm chasing a, a smooth shooting, you know, self bow. So until I can make that, you know, I'll be shooting this stuff. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. I've, uh, I've never really shot carbon. I've always stuck with wood. I don't know why. Um, and, uh, you always had Portorford cedar. Now I'm trying Douglas fir and seeing how that goes, but I always shoot tapered because they clear my longbow a little bit better, but I've never have jumped uh-huh. into the, uh, into the carbon era. Well, you guys, I'm jealous of you, you old timers that have always <laughs> used wood and that's just the way it worked and you know, it works. And yeah. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to shoot bullseyes, you know, I'm and in a hunting situation as opposed to, you know, target archery or something like that. Um, I don't, I consider myself a great hunter and not a great shot. That's why I have to get mm-hmm. close. And, and I figure that like you, you know, your tracking ability, I think that our stalking ability is more important than accuracy out to 50, 60 yards, which would, is absolutely out of my range. But I'm, I'm thinking right. that, you know, really the, that's the whole idea is to get close. And so for the distances I shoot, wood is perfect. Yeah. And like you though, yeah, I, right. I shoot at everything and I go through a lot of arrows. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of hunting um have you hunted outside of california much yeah i've i've been to oregon uh four times for elk um and and once um for bear this past spring was my my first time up there for spring bear and then i went to uh idaho last fall for elk for with rifle and mm-hmm. then um once i went back to visit family in massachusetts and got to hunt whitetail for 10 days oh fabulous did you get one yeah I, you know, I, um, I hit two, this is back. This is about when I started this, that I needed to address some target panic. I, I made a flesh wound over the top of the back of one. Um, and he was fine. I saw him trying to breed a doe a couple of days later. And then I hit one pretty hard and I think I got one lung. <clears throat> I tracked him 
Well, we tracked him about 500 yards and he got out on this peninsula in a, in a bay and I left him for three hours and then we went back in and I tracked him to his bed and he got up and ran and then we backed out that evening and then a thunderstorm came in, dumped rain. And, um, I, you know, I spent the next couple of days, even with a dog and we never found him. Hmm. He might've swum across the bay because another guy told us that he's pushed a deer across the bay before. But that was right about when I was needing to realize that I needed to address that target panic, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a fact of life. If you're a hunter, you're going to lose animals. And anyone who says that they've never lost an animal is either a liar or they've never shot at one. It happens. And it's something we all learn from, as you well know. And it, it will happen again. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I believe you. I, hunting those whitetails during the rut was so much fun, mm-hmm. especially coming from the West. Um, it was so much fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you had a chance to, to, have you ever hunted outside of, uh, the, the States? No, I have not. Oh, it's something that you've got to put on your wish list one of these days. <laughs> it is. It is for sure. I, you know, I worked in Alberta, um, on some large carnivore studies, but, um, I haven't hunted anywhere outside of the States. So what do you, what your work, what do you do now? So, uh, currently, uh, I'm a biologist for the Yurok tribe up here on the Klamath river in California. Within the natural resources division, the Yurok tribe's goal is to restore the land um, to the original health prior to European contact, as it was for time immemorial. Right. And as part of the wildlife program, uh, our big iconic species is the reintroduction of California condors. Mm. Uh, I should point out here that I'm not a tribe member. I'm just an employee of the tribe. As I understand it, uh, condor is vital for the Yurok's most important world renewal dance because condor fly so high they can carry the prayers of the people to the creator. And there hasn't been a condor here in a hundred years. Wow. So that's sort of our, you know, that's our big um, project. Specifically, my duties um, are more focused on the management of, of ungulates, elk and deer on the, on the Yurok lands. And the Yurok, I'm familiar with a lot of the Klamath area, um, especially the, on the I-5 oh, cool. corridor. But um, on the Yurok, where is that reservation? Where Where is that? Is that on the coastal side? Yeah, we're on the coast. So Yurok Ancestral Territory starts uh, right on the coast, the Pacific Ocean, where the Klamath River, um, you know, empties mm-hmm. into the ocean. And then it extends uh, upriver uh, 44 river miles. Oh, okay. um, and then south into what is now Redwood National Park and then north up into the Siskiyou Wilderness. Um, it's an incredibly beautiful country uh, and we such a diverse ecosystem. You know, on the coast in the old growth redwoods, you know, we can receive up oh, to yes. 100 inches of rain in the year. You know, inland, there's six different species of oaks. Um, we've got sea level up to, um, I think we get up to like 5,000 feet. Uh, and the Klamath River is, it was the third, uh, largest salmon run in the lower 48, um, historically. Right. I believe that, um, they basically end right around Wairika or excuse me. Um, I think that's where that, is it Iron, Iron Gate? Iron Gate. Yeah. Yep. That's the yep. last Iron Gate. I, yep. Yeah. I fished, uh, I used to fish that river a lot. My folks, oh, uh, cool. my folks lived up there in, uh, uh, Montague area, and I don't know if you're familiar with that oh. area. And um, just no, I'm not. Yeah, just about 
five miles from the border and six miles or something like that. And so I used to fish steelhead and salmon up and down that river a long time ago. So it was a beautiful, oh, yeah. beautiful you, you part of the country. Like here. <laughs> yeah. It, it's so neat working up there and working for the tribe because the culture is still focused so much on um, obtaining food from the land, you know, and so I'll go into work. And the first thing that people are asking you after the weekend is, Oh, you know, did, did you get any eels or, you know, are the fish running or what mushrooms are popping up, you know? And, and it's so neat to be around a culture like that, that that's still so tied to, to where our food comes from, you know? Well, and you're also, uh, you're, uh, how can I say this? Uh, you're very interested in using all of the animal. And I, have you learned, is that something you picked up working with the Yurok? Um, I'm, I'm learning more from them. Uh, yes. I, I got into it back when I, you know, was in Vermont and learning and teaching survival skills and, and primitive living. Um, and, and it's just something that interested me, you know, and, and it's something that interests my friends. And, and I'm, I'm still learning. There's so much to learn, you know, around tanning hides. And, and I've learned so much from my buddy, um, Matt Nelson and Tim Nelson about how to eat parts of the animal that, you know, folks don't usually talk about. I mean, my buddy Tim will eat the lungs. Um, they eat the testicles. Um, you know, he eats the brain. I, I haven't done that yet, but, um, you know, my buddy, Matt, I call him pig Matt just because <laughs> he, he, he acts like a pig, but he boils down the feet and, and eats the tendons on the feet. I mean, as much as those guys can get off the animal, I've learned so much from them. And, and I really try to urge folks to, to do that as well. You know, livers and, and kidneys and tongues. And, you know, when those elk we killed last year in Idaho, my buddy Bear Matt, he, um, he cut all the meat off of the heads. And, and there was, I, I didn't weigh it, but another 10 pounds of meat to grind, you know? Wow. I know it's a, yeah. there's a lot of, there's a lot of parts people do not eat. Like you mentioned lungs. I've, I've heard of that. I've never tried it. I'm, I've eaten brains. I've eaten a lot of weird stuff. I've eaten eyeballs oh, out wow. of fish. You know? <laughs> oh yeah. But, yeah. You know, Cause I, I took wilderness and a jungle survival classes when I was younger, once in the Philippines and then uh, wilderness survival in California, actually. And we had to eat a lot of things and trapping mice uh, and eating them and pounding them up and, bones yep. and all and it's so it's kind of it's strange you know i know you 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 talk about a lot of that stuff like eating things like tongue and the liver and one thing that fascinates me fascinates me is you make bone broth out of uh these animals oh i love bone broth. <laughs> i do too but i've never done it with a wild animal oh man i mean it, it just adds a whole nother dimension to, to your stews and your soups mm -hmm. um yeah it's it's incredible um yeah, I, 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 anytime I can save the, bone, the bones, I, I do make broth, yeah. Sounds like it hit a, a special thing there for you, <laughs> bone broth. Oh, I love bone so broth, good. too, especially in fall and things like that. No, that's interesting. It's so good. My buddy Tim, one time we were hunting elk. This is the first elk hunting trip I'd ever been on, and, and we came across a carcass of a bull that somebody had just killed the day before. They had boned it out, left the carcass in the woods, and Tim hiked around until he found some rocks and he started cracking the leg bones and just scooping the marrow out and yeah. eating it raw. Um, that guy has a tough stomach. <laughs> well, that sounds like an animal thing. That's okay. Um, quickly though, how do you make your bone broth? If you were to do, uh, I've made it with beef, but I've never done it with game mainly because there's usually a lot of lard. And I'm curious how you do that with wild game. Cause it's something I would like to try. Yeah. So, so I just, I throw the bones into a pot, um, and, and simmer it 
um, it's nice in the winter if you have a wood stove because mm-hmm. you can just throw it on the stove. Um, and, and I just simmer it for a day and, uh, until the bones are pure white and all the ligaments and tendons have just fallen apart, you know, mm-hmm. and then you can set it outside if it's cold or, or set it in your fridge and that fat will congeal on the top right. of the pot. And then you can scrape all that, that fat off. There, there's like a, usually a white layer of fat mm-hmm. and then there's a, a jelly, a gelatin, and then there's liquid. And so if, if what I like to do is pull that fat off and, and put it in a jar and I can use that later for cooking or whatever. And then, and then if you don't like the taste of the fat, you know, you, it won't be in your broth. Using all the animal. I really like that. Yeah. And I know that, you know, with deer and elk, they, they can have a pretty strong taste to their fat, but, but with hogs and bears, I, I oh. love the fat in my broth. So I'll just leave it in there. You know? Fabulous. You'll have to send me a recipe sometime. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, any last questions? I think this has been an excellent discussion. I'm, I'm very fascinated with your tracking and I look forward to more articles from you, but um, any last questions you, or any, uh, any thoughts you'd like to share with our readers, our listeners? Uh, I really appreciate what, what you guys are doing at Traditional Bowhunter Magazine. Um, really looking forward to the podcast that that you're going to put out. Um, I love hearing from seasoned folks um, that have been doing this for a while and and have a a similar mindset towards the you know nature as, as I do. Um, so I'm just I just am really thankful for what you guys do there and looking forward to more of it. Well, I appreciate that. We're trying to do something different. Um, and and this is why people like you that are uh, really staying out there, you're not in the limelight like everybody else is recording. It's always nice to hear that, but I don't want to listen to the same people when 15 people are doing the same podcast. So we're trying to find people who actually have experience that are younger uh, listeners and new people into the sport will, they can uh, attach themselves to uh, somebody like you, who's not really well known, but you have some fascinating stories to to tell. And listen, I do appreciate your time, uh, Preston. And I have to ask you, what does the A Preston stand for? <laughs> <laughs> that's my first. That's my first name. It's it's Andrew. Andrew. Um, okay, I was. <laughs> yeah. They've always called me by my middle name, and you know, honestly, the first article I wrote, I did that a little bit in in. Um, uh, I've looked up to, to Don Thomas, you know, reading his stuff for, for a while now. And, and that's sort of why I did it. And right. Well, you <laughs> know, I can't turn back. <laughs> so it's Andrew Preston. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah. It's uh really cool. Listen, uh, I really appreciate your time, Preston, and, um, hope to see some more articles come by. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on. All right. Listen, you have a great day. You too, DJ. hope you enjoyed this campfire chat podcast thanks for joining us please subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss the next one and visit our website www.tradbow.com for great articles tips and lots more of traditional bow hunter magazine